York. This is Democracy Now! We are currently trapped at 136 and Brook Avenue since 745. They are pushing us. They are pushing us. They are pushing us. They are pushing us. New York City has agreed to an historic multi-million dollar settlement with peaceful protesters in the South Bronx who police violently boxed in or kettled during a 2020 protest two weeks after the police murder of George Floyd. We'll speak with two of the plaintiffs and with a journalist who is filming that day. Then to Nigeria, where opposition parties are disputing the results of Saturday's presidential election in Africa's most populous country. You won the election. I will prove it to Nigeria. We'll go to Lagos for an update. Then Guatemala bans Telma Cabrera, the Mayamam environmental and human rights activist, from running for president. We'll speak with Cabrera and her running mate in a rare U.S. interview. La respuesta de nosotros los pueblos the response as indigenous people is that this ratifies what we've always denounced, that Guatemala is a corrupt state that's been co-opted by criminals. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. German Chancellor Olaf Scholz has begun a two-day visit to Washington, D.C., for confidential talks with President Biden that are believed to be focused on Russia's invasion of Ukraine. German opposition leaders have accused Scholz of secrecy after he scheduled no public appearances, no press conferences, and traveled without his usual contingent of journalists. The talks follow tensions over U.S. demands Germany ship Leopard 2 battle tanks to Ukraine, which Germany agreed to in January. The U.S. is also pressuring Germany to speed up production of ammunition. Meanwhile, the head of Russia's Wagner Group said today mercenaries have almost completely surrounded the besieged city of Bakhmut in Ukraine's eastern Donbass region. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken says he pressed Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov to reestablish the new START nuclear arms reduction treaty after their brief encounter Thursday on the sidelines of the G20 summit in New Delhi. It was the first face-to-face -face meeting of high-level U.S. and Russian officials since Russia's invasion over a year ago. I urge Russia to reverse its irresponsible decision and return to implementing the new START treaty which places verifiable limits on the nuclear arsenals of the United States and the Russian Federation. Mutual compliance is in the interest of both our countries. It's also what people around the world expect from us as nuclear powers. Neither the U.S. nor Russia has joined 92 other nations that have signed the U.N. Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. In Belarus, a court has sentenced pro-democracy activist Alas Bielyatsky, a 2022 Nobel Peace laureate and 2020 Right Livelihood laureate, to 10 years in prison. Bielyatsky and three other people from the Vyazna Human Rights Center were convicted with financing anti-government protests and smuggling money, the government said. He's been in jail since 2021. Wide-scale protests erupted against the re-election of President Alexander Lukashenko. 
In Cambodia, opposition leader Khem Socha has been sentenced to 27 years of house arrest. The former leader of the now-banned Cambodian National Rescue Party was accused of conspiracy with a foreign power, treason and encouraging a revolution. This comes amidst a heightened crackdown in Cambodia on opposition and the media. Israeli forces in the occupied West Bank shot and killed a 15-year-old Palestinian boy Thursday during a raid near the city of Kokilia. The Palestinian Ministry of Health reports the teenager, Mohammed Nadal Salim, was shot in the back while two other Palestinians were wounded, including one person who was struck in the chest by gunfire. Israel's army said soldiers were responding to suspects who hurled Molotov cocktails at them. Israeli soldiers and police have killed at least 65 Palestinians so far this year, a rate of more than one death per day. Thirteen Israelis and one police officer have been killed by Palestinians over the same period. French President Emmanuel Macron declared Thursday the era of French interference in Africa is over as he embarked on a four-nation tour of the continent. Last week, Macron pledged to reduce France's military role in Africa after recent withdrawals from Mali and Burkina Faso. France's efforts to stem attacks from Islamist insurgents in the Sahel have largely failed. But Macron said France intends to maintain a presence in its former colonies with a reduced footprint amidst Western concerns of growing ties with Russia and China. In the Democratic Republic of Congo, a former Belgian colony, protesters gathered outside the French embassy in Kinshasa this week. They condemned Macron's visit and demanded France pressure Rwandan President Paul Kagame to stop supporting M23 rebels in the DRC. France finances terrorists' groups here in Africa, in several African states, in the Congo. So recently, Mr. Macron came to placate us, the Congolese, but the Congolese people are not duped. Never did he point a finger at Mr. Kagame. At no point did he condemn Mr. Kagame. Here in the United States, Walgreens says it will not dispense abortion pills in some states where the procedure remains legal after receiving pressure and threats from Republican lawmakers and anti-abortion groups. The Biden administration approved the sale of the abortion pill, mefepristone, directly from pharmacies in January, both by mail and in person. Medical abortions are now the most popular method of terminating a pregnancy, can be a lifeline for many people following the overturning of Roe v. Wade. This comes as a Texas judge is poised to deliver Deliver a ruling that could halt distribution of the abortion pills nationwide. On Thursday, a group of top human rights groups and experts asked the U.N. to intervene to stop the destruction of abortion rights in the U.S., saying that with the SCOTUS decision in Dobbs, quote, the U.S. is in violation of its obligations under international human rights law, unquote. Meanwhile, reproductive rights groups in Ohio submitted a petition to create a ballot initiative that would let Ohioans vote to enshrine abortion rights in the Ohio Constitution. Eli Lilly has announced it's lowering the price of insulin by 70 percent, capping its out-of-pocket cost at $35 and offering its generic insulin at $25. The move follows years of organizing and pressure from activists, lawmakers and people with diabetes. In response, Senator Bernie Sanders wrote to the drug companies Sanofi and Novo Nordisk, demanding they follow suit. Sanders wrote, quote, insulin is not a new drug. It was discovered 100 years ago by Canadian scientists who sold the 
the patent rights of insulin for just $1 because they wanted to save lives, not make pharmaceutical executives extremely wealthy. And yet, as a result of unacceptable corporate greed, the price of insulin has gone up by over 1,000 percent since 1996, causing 1.3 million people with diabetes to ration insulin last year, while your companies made billions of dollars in profits, Senator Sanders wrote. The Environmental Protection Agency has ordered Norfolk Southern to test for dioxins in East Palestine, Ohio, the site of a February 3rd train wreck that caused a massive release of chemicals. Dioxins are a class of highly toxic contaminants that could have formed in the chemical burn-off of the wreckage. They're found in Agent Orange and have been linked to some of the worst environmental disasters in U.S. history, including the poisoning of the Love Canal neighborhood of Niagara Falls, New York, in the 1970s. The EPA's order came as residents confronted a representative for Norfolk Southern at a town hall meeting in East Palestine Thursday evening. Touched me on every level. This has touched my family. This has touched my friends. This has touched my farm. This has touched my animals. This has touched my finances. This has touched my home. And it will touch me to the cellular level when I get diagnosed with cancer, ALS, or whatever is going to come down the road if I stay in this contaminated, toxic town. And you all know it. On Wednesday, union leaders representing rail workers wrote to Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg, Ohio Governor Mike DeWine, and other officials blasting Norfolk Southern for risking the health of workers at the crash site and not providing personal protective equipment as they clean up. The letter states workers, quote, continue to experience migraines and nausea days after the derailment, and they all suspect that they were willingly exposed to these chemicals at the direction of Norfolk Southern they wrote. On Capitol Hill, the House Ethics Committee has opened an investigation into Republican Congressmember George Santos, who's admitted to lying about his background during a successful 2022 campaign to represent New York's 3rd Congressional District. The committee will probe whether Congressmember Santos engaged in unlawful activity, including failure to properly disclose financial information, whether he violated conflict of interest laws and allegations of sexual misconduct. Republican House Speaker Kevin McCarthy has so far refused to call on Santos to step down. And the Justice Department has argued former President Donald Trump does not have absolute immunity from civil lawsuits stemming from the January 6th assault on the U.S. Capitol. Top Justice Department lawyers made the assertion as part of an amicus brief filed on behalf of Capitol Police officers and House Democrats who are suing Trump for physical and psychological harm brought by the insurrection. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. When we come back, New York City has agreed to an historic multimillion-dollar settlement with peaceful South Bronx protesters who police violently boxed in or kettled during a 2020 protest two weeks after the police murder of George Floyd. We'll speak with two of the plaintiffs and a journalist who was filming that day. Stay with us.
Always with the quickness, quickness, quickness. One sweat, two sweat, three motions. What motions? What could a man see? She watching you. Who? Me, me. Honey Velveeta got you cut. Uh, ain't no locking up now. Just the symmetrics to your bottom. Ain't no locking up. <laughs> Shake, looks at that Catholic cool. Push panic, the button and freeze. It's for amen. The Jennifer O'Denny's, oh, please, oh, please, oh, please, oh, please. Let, let, let Me In by De La Soul. After decades of legal wrangling over sample clearance, the seminal hip-hop group's music will finally be available online today. Bittersweet after the passing last month of member Trugoy the Dove. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. We begin today's show here in New York where the city has agreed to a multimillion-dollar settlement with peaceful protesters who were violently boxed in or kettled by New York police officers during a Black Lives Matter demonstration two weeks after the police murder of George Floyd in 2020. As part of the settlement, over 300 people who were trapped by police and assaulted with batons and pepper spray, then detained or arrested at a June 4, 2020 protest, will each receive $21,500, believed to be the largest class action settlement in a case of mass arrest. The arrest took place in the South Bronx. A Human Rights Watch investigation said the NYPD's conduct that day amounted to serious violations of international human rights law. We are currently trapped at 136 and Brook Avenue since 745. They are pushing us. They are pushing us. That's part of a video report produced by Human Rights Watch that raised awareness about the kettling that took place that day. This is another clip. As the marchers headed down Willis Avenue, more than 50 police officers blocked the street. Yo, we gonna go around. We gonna go around. The march redirected down 136th Street. And in the final minutes, just before the 8 o'clock curfew, instead of allowing or even directing the marchers to disperse, the NYPD diverted its bicycle officers to block the marchers just as they reached the intersection of 136 and Brook Avenue. officers blocked the protesters from turning back. It's a tactic called kettling. That's from a Human Rights Watch investigation of the NYPD kettling in the South Bronx June 4, 2020, that was the focus of the historic settlement announced this week. In response to concerns raised at the time, the police said their crackdown was pre-planned. This is New York City Police Commissioner at the time, Dermot Shea. And we had a plan which was executed nearly flawlessly in the Bronx. 
Um, this wasn't again about protest. This was about tearing down society. Meanwhile, NYPD's Strategic Response Group has continued to target nonviolent protesters. And this week, dozens of people testified at the New York City Council about their abusive tactics. The NYPD refused to show up. For more, we're joined by three people who were at the protest in the Bronx in June 2020. Sanji Lopez was filming the protest. She's currently a video news fellow here at Democracy Now! Her footage was used in the Human Rights Watch report. Also with us, Samira Sierra and Amelie Sierra. They're sisters. They're among the five listed plaintiffs. And joining us, Joshua Moskovitz, one of the lawyers representing the plaintiffs. We welcome you all to Democracy Now! Um, let's begin with the plaintiffs, with Samira and Amelie. Samira, why don't you start off by talking about what this protest was about two weeks after George Floyd's murder, where you marched and what happened? Good morning. The protest was during the uprisings right after George Floyd's murder. And simply, we were exercising our human rights, our civil rights, and we were demonstrating um, and standing up against all of the racial injustice that happens day in and day out in this country. And Amelie, um, that's your older sister, Samira. Uh, talk about your decision. I mean, it was brave to go out. We're talking about June of 2020. This is at the height of the COVID pandemic, at the time of the killing, the police killing of George Floyd. Did you expect what happened to happen? And then explain what happened in just one block of the South Bronx when you were stopped by police. Yes. So, to your point, this was in the midst of um, a global health crisis. Uh, we had been in the pandemic for a few months at this point. This was not the first of the protests that we attended that summer. It was the first that we had attended in our home in the South, in the South Bronx. And the energy that day uh, from the beginning of the protests was very tense. And so, the very short protest that we partook in on June 4th reflected just that. It was very tense. It was met very violently. Uh, however, we were very peaceful in our demeanor, uh, while also making sure to exercise our right that we are entitled to and express the anger and the frustration that we felt because of the violence that black and brown people are constantly met with in the United States of America. And so, although our message was very clear and we were very intent, intentional in expressing our frustration and our anger, we were, we were at any time, we were not violent. Uh, we were very peaceful. And so, uh, it was met very violently and we were not expecting at any point to be met with all the aggression that we were uh, by the NYPD and by the SRG specifically. I mean, the terrifying image, Samira, of the police blocking you in, kettling you, and telling you to move where there's no place to go, and then explain what the police did. Sure. So, we were um, very strategically guided down 136th Street, and um, when we 
as we were walking down towards Brook Avenue, um, we were blocked off by a line of um, officers on both ends of the street, so off of Willis Avenue and on Brook Avenue. And they, there was a, a commander in a white shirt who continued to uh, direct the officers to move in at the same time. Um, we were boxed in, we were kettled, um, and we were also uh, like squished. Our bodies were squished, like squished up against each other. Um, there were people that, I mean, you just passed that footage where, you know, it was it was terror. Uh, we were terrified for our lives. Uh, people could couldn't ble breathe. People were fainting. Um, I was. I have never uh, in my life felt the amount of fear that I felt that day. Sanji Lopez, uh, it's great to have you on screen, as you're usually behind the scenes and filming, and that's what you were doing that day, uh, Democracy Now! Video News Fellow Now. But at the time, you were filming this protest. Um, explain what you saw. And, I mean, when you see the police, the first arrests are of the legal and the medics, and they're very clear about what they're doing. Move ahead and arrest them, they said. Right, Amy, I was there. Um, I'm actually a South Bronx resident. I live in Mont Haven, and this was the second peaceful protest that I participated in in my neighborhood. Um, and it was absolutely peaceful. What I saw when the police came down this hill on 137th Street um, and kettled folks, um, I, I saw police coming down the hill on bikes at rapid speed. And as soon as that happened, yeah. literally like a second later, they started blocking people off with their bikes and pushing people with these bikes, attacking medics, like you said, Amy, attacking lawyers, people that were there on legal aids to help community members and protesters alike in case things like this happen, right? But we were not expecting that. Luckily, I managed to run away. But before I could run away, I was able to document and, and film, as you said, HRW and, and Saitu. Um, Human Rights Watch were able to use uh, the video that I recorded that day, but it was frightening. I had never been um, so scared in my and fearful in my own neighborhood, um, and I'll never forget that. I wasn't able to leave my home for months after that, like uh, um, other protesters, um, and felt unsafe, and it, it was just so traumatizing that day. I want to bring the lawyer into this conversation, uh, Joshua Moskovitz, the lawyer for the plaintiffs. Joshua, talk about the unit of police. I mean, we just played uh, Dermot Shea, the police chief at the time in New York, saying this was all pre-planned by the police. And in this Human Rights Watch reporting, which uses a lot of Sanji's footage, you see they deliberately uh, go after the legal and the medical team's First, and they're very clear. One of the police officers said it's fine. It said something. I think he had police legal on his shirt, and he said it's fine to arrest the legal observers who are considered essential workers at the time. Right? They were allowed to be out. Explain who this team of police are. Right. So the NYPD's Strategic Response Group, or SRG, are a paramilitary organization within the NYPD. That are used to protest, that are used to police protest events, um, nonviolent protest events like we saw in Mott Haven. Uh, they've come under appropriate scrutiny for their violent tactics that are primarily used to suppress uh, nonviolent free speech activity like we saw in Mott Haven. This was no accident. This was a planned operation. Uh, 
And what's unique about the Mott Haven operation is that it was planned by the highest level officials within the police department. Terrence Monahan, the chief of department, which is the highest ranked, uh, highest uniformed ranking officer within the police department, was personally present at Mott Haven. Uh, so were the executive officer, the commanding officer, and the bureau chief that oversee the SRG unit. Uh, they had a plan that day, and as the commissioner said the next day, it was executed in their view flawlessly. I mean, it's just astounding. And you see them separate out. Uh, one of the leaders of the protest with a bullhorn, um, they push her aside. In fact, she was one of the first to be arrested. That's right. I mean, it, there's no question in the world that the plan that day was to instill fear in people so that they would stop protesting. Uh, this was not a violent uh, uprising. This was a peaceful protest. In fact, there were uh, people attending the protest who lived in the South Bronx who were uh, members of the mayor's cabinet. The commissioner of the community affairs uh, for Mayor de Blasio was there personally because he lived in the South Bronx, Marco Carrion. He talked about what happened that day and described the sentiment at the protest as closer to a candlelight vigil. Uh, the purpose of this operation was to instill fear in people. You know, it's very interesting that on Wednesday, the city council held a long-planned, repeatedly delayed oversight hearing um, on the strategic response group that was involved with this. No one from the NYPD showed up, citing ongoing litigation. Your response to this, and talk about this historic settlement in the country for what took place in the South Bronx— well, as you said, this is a historic settlement. Uh, as far as we can tell, this is the largest per person um, class action mass arrest settlement uh, in the country. And we think that the, that is appropriate given the extreme violence uh, that we saw uh, carried out by the NYPD during that operation. And the size of the award that the city agreed to, we think, reflects an acknowledgement or understanding that what happened that day was unconstitutional, it was immoral, and it should never happen again. We hope uh, that the NYPD uh, has taken this to heart and will reform the operations and, frankly, never use the SRG for policing uh, protest events in the future. Um, but the other aspect of this case that I think often gets overlooked is that this happened in the South Bronx. This happened in New York Congressional District 15, which is 97% people of color. It's also one of the poorest congressional districts in the entire country. This operation wasn't carried out in Manhattan, where there were protests. It wasn't carried out in Brooklyn, where there were protests that summer. There was a choice made at the highest levels of the NYPD to carry out this operation in the South Bronx. And that fact is part of what has um, uh, led to the Human Rights Watch, uh, finding this to be a human rights violation. And um, we're proud of our clients in pursuing this litigation and pursuing the result that they achieved here for people who weren't able to get lawyers, but who were there that day and who were injured. Amelie and Samira. Um, Amelie, you're 25. Samira's 30 now. This was three years ago. What does this settlement mean for each of you? Amelie, let's begin with you. This settlement is larger than myself. I believe that the settlement allows for individuals who were there that day, the hundreds of individuals that were there that day, the opportunity to come forward. 
the opportunity to be recognized and acknowledged um, based off of the abuse that they endured that day, and hopefully an opportunity to also heal. Uh, it was very traumatic, and trauma looks very different for every individual. And so I hope that this encourages all of the individuals that were unable to rep represent themselves to come forward. Um, and that is why it is extremely uh, crucial and very important to be a representative of a class action of this magnitude, not just for myself, but for the greater good and for all of the people that were unable to represent themselves. And Samira, your response, and also the fact that no police officer was charged that day, and also there wasn't an official apology, but you did um, have this financial settlement. Right. Um, the settlement, to me, means that the city of New York is being held accountable for organizing the highest level of the NYPD, which is the Strategic Response Group, and holding them accountable for flawlessly executing excessive force in the South Bronx, which is my home. And Josh, very quickly— It also means to— oh, go ahead. It also, it also means to me that, um, you know, they're being held accountable for the violation of human rights of black and brown folks in this country, um, one of many. Uh, there, we have a long way to go, um, but it, it, it's— it, feels really good, for the lack of a better word, to know that there is some accountability. Joshua, very quickly, there are other lawsuits, right? This is not the only one, this class action. That's right. There are other lawsuits that are still proceeding. Uh, one, in fact, interestingly brought by the New York State Attorney General's office against the city of New York, um, seeking injunctive relief to reform the police department's policing of protest events. And finally, Sanji Lopez, um, you were not kettled in. You escaped that. But can you talk about the effect on you um, as a journalist who is filming, uh, seeing uh, these people kettled in, uh, being beaten um, by the police? Absolutely, Amy. Me, um, beyond being a journalist, I'm a community member. I grew up in this area, so it hurt to see my community being beat like this. And as, you know, in response to the class action lawsuit, it's, it's great that people are getting um, monetary, you know, uh, being compensated monetarily. But we also need some trauma, some healing, uh, maybe therapy offered to folks like myself who ran away, who were able to get away from this. I also wanted to add really quickly, Amy, that Mount Haven Families, a community group with children and adults, protest in front of the 40th Precinct, demanding accountability and asking the question, what happened on June 4th for months on end and had no response, no, no answer from the NYPD or accountability from the city. And meanwhile, a small jail, a, a jail was being built in Mont Haven across the street from my former middle school while all of this was happening. So this is just a traumatic event. And I think that we need to remember that people are still healing from this to this day. Well, Sanji Lopez, I want to thank you for joining us on screen today. Democracy Now! Video News Fellow filmed the protest in 2020. Samira and Amelie Sierra named plaintiffs in this historic class action lawsuit. And Joshua Moskowitz, lawyer for the plaintiffs. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. As we turn now to Africa's most populous country, to Nigeria.
where opposition parties are disputing the results of this weekend's presidential election, Nigeria's Independent National Electoral Commission has declared the winner to be Bola Tinubu of the ruling All Progressives Congress Party. Tinubu, the former governor of Lagos, played a key role in helping outgoing Nigerian President Mohamedou Buhari win two terms in office. He campaigned using the slogan, It's My Turn. Tinubu received uh, 36 percent of the vote. Turnout was under 30 percent. Several of Tinubu's challengers have disputed the results, alleging fraud, while election observers and voters have cited delays, closures and violence at voting sites. On Thursday, Peter Obi, who placed third despite winning in Lagos, announced he would contest the election results in court. Let me reiterate and assure you that good people of Nigeria that will explore all legal and peaceful options to reclaim our mandate. <laughs> we won the election. And we will prove it to Nigerians. We go now to Lagos, Nigeria, where we're joined by Adaraka Ige. She is a human rights activist, lawyer, who works with corporate accountability and public participation Africa. I mean, you have this election being challenged by civic groups, by international groups, from the EU monitoring group to the um, U.S. International Republican Institute to the National Democratic Institute, across the board. Describe what happened. Thank you, Amy. Uh, thank you for the opportunity to be on your platform again. Um, I've been here before. Um, in a nutshell, what happened on Saturday, um, which was, of course, um, the Nigeria's general election, which was supposed to be also the election that um, helped the people to bring into office uh, the president and then the legislature at the national level. So there, there were three elections on that day for the presidency, for the Senate, and the House of Representatives, which are the legislative um, arms of government at the national level. Um, I think there's, it's, it's no gain saying that, um, like you said also in your introduction, a lot of... Um, um, disappointment, a lot of um, complaints have also riddled or have been the aftermath of that election. I had the privilege of, of observing the election, and I also voted uh, as, a, as a citizen. Um, one of the first things I would say I immediately noticed was the fact that um, there was late deployment of even the INEC officers in certain polling um, Units, some of the places where I observed, I had to personally even play the role of because I had observed that for a long time people were just waiting and then the wait became panic and it became tension and agitation. So, in that sense, you would have to play the role of a mediator, someone who is comforting, but someone also who wants the process to be as credible as possible. So, by the time the INEC officers arrived, I was the first person to ask them, but why this delay? In fact, I was really imagining that it was because they didn't have security, maybe. And then they went ahead to say, oh, no, it was not even security. They just had logistical challenges. That was what they cited. So it, it was um, not uh, shocking that after the, uh, even as, as the elections were going on, there were real-time uh, videos, um, messaging, and so on, of people just complaining about very similar things. And then another thing that was really um, 
obvious uh, in Saturday's elections was the fact that there were so many irregularities or at least alleged irregularities given uh, pieces of evidence that came forward in certain places. Meanwhile, in other parts of the country, of course, people said they voted peacefully. There were no issues for them. But then, um, so I'm trying to balance it here so it doesn't look like hasty generalization. But from what we saw, there were also cases of violence, um, pockets of violence here and there of people being brutalized or even open intimidation threats to certain voters uh, because probably of uh, tribe and, you know, just locations. And then they were really harassed. And some people could also not vote at the end of the day. So that's the summary of the elections. And talk about the significance of the ruling party, well, so-called winning, Tanubu continuing on. Hello, Amy. Please, can you take that again? Oh, I was just asking if you can talk about the significance of Bola Tanubu saying that he won the ruling party continuing to rule from Buhari. Oh, I mean, OK, so I think this will take us back a little bit because I remember the last time I was here, um, you know, we were talking about the um, NSARS movement um, protests that eventually became a movement. And if you remember, Amy, it was also that movement itself or the uh, series of protests uh, were unceremoniously truncated by what was alleged to have been involvement of the state. Uh, and that movement also that was essentially led and um, activated by young people was what metamorphosed, in, in my opinion, and the opinion of so many people, metamorphosed into uh, a, a certain kind of people power led by young people who felt that because their voices were not validated or even heard um, back then in 2020, they were going to deploy all of that energy and that anger, raw frustration into the 2023 elections. Meaning that a lot of people also, in that sense, wanted the ruling power, the current um, ruling power, APC, out of power. Most of them young people. So for those young people, which class I also belong to, it was a time to speak loudly and clearly, probably not on the streets anymore at this point, but through the ballot. So um, for, for them, because of all these irregularities, which I would also say categorically that our election monitoring body or management body, INEC in this case, played a role in also um, giving validation to, um, it's, it's, for them, it was an unfair process. For a lot of young people also, it's a process that did not allow their voices to be heard. What we saw was um, immediately after the truncation of the of the NSAS protest, um, a lot of the energy that was channeled was not just about waiting to vote in 2023, but also the fact that a lot of young people got involved in the process, even by um, putting themselves forward for political offices, engaging the system, engaging the politics, and also deciding to be candidates. So that was a great thing that was really applauded. But with this um, whole um, gamut of what has happened, it's also like a, a dash of hope. It's, a, it's a, a truncation, another form of truncation of the kind of trust that the young people also still reposed a little bit in the system because this time around is meant to be conducted by an independent National Electoral Commission, not necessarily the ruling um, party. And you might find it interesting to also know that between then and now, a lot has happened, including the review or the amendment of the electoral law, which essentially is the Electoral Act 
of Nigeria, which a lot of people also applauded because we saw some innovations coming into the act, beginning with even funding what is now supposed to be at a level of financial autonomy for the um, election management body. Also, introduction of, um, or at least legitimization of uh, technology in the electoral process itself. But all of that has, um, I think, hopes have been dashed. A well, lot of trust has also been crushed. Well, so I, any claim that is being held by any political aspirant or even candidate right now uh, can be subjected to tests. Adaranke Ige, we want to thank you so much for being with us, human rights activist and lawyer joining us from Lagos, Nigeria. On Monday, we'll continue to look at this election in Africa's most populous country. Next up, as Guatemala bans Telma Cabrera, the Mayamam environmental and human rights activist from running for president, in a rare U.S. interview, we'll speak with Telma Cabrera and her running mate. Stay with us. Suficiente, aunque intento no entiendo al resto de la gente. ¿Qué más das? Igual no me entiendo a mí. Vivo en conflicto y no sé a dónde ir. Queen of Chaos by Guatemalan feminist hip hop artist Rebecca Lane. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. From the Nigerian election to the election in this hemisphere to Guatemala. We end today's show looking at this year's presidential election there, happening at a time of worsening repression in Guatemala against journalists, human rights activists and indigenous environmental defenders in the Central American country. The Guatemalan Constitutional Court Thursday ruled against presidential candidate Thelma Cabrera and her running mate, exiled human rights ombudsman Jordan Rodas, upholding a February decision by Guatemala the Supreme Electoral Tribunal to block them from the ballot. <clears throat> Cabrera and Rodas are members of the less leftist political party, the Movement for the Liberation of the Peoples, which grew out of the indigenous-led farmers' rights organization CODECA. Across Guatemala, thousands have taken to the streets in protest, demanding that Cabrera and Rodas be allowed to participate in June's election. Thelma Cabrera is a Mayamam environmental and human rights defender who also ran for president in 2019, receiving an unprecedented wave of support. She got about 10 percent of the vote. Rodas served as human rights prosecutor in Guatemala from 2017 until last year, when he was forced to flee for allying himself with anti-corruption efforts. While they're being— while they're being banned from participating 
in the election. The Guatemalan Constitutional Court has confirmed the presidential candidacy of the conservative Zuri Rios. She's the daughter of the dead former U.S.-backed military dictator Efrain Rios Montt, who rose to power after a coup in 1982. Rios Montt was convicted of genocide and crimes against humanity 10 years ago. Re Zuri Rios had been prohibited from running in 2019 due to a constitutional measure that doesn't allow figures who came to power by coup or their blood relatives to run for president. Cabrera and Rodas took their fight to the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights in Washington, D.C. last month. They also traveled to New York, where Democracy Now! spoke with them. I began by asking Telma Cabrera for her response to being blocked from the election. La respuesta de nosotros los pueblos the response as indigenous people is that this ratifies what we've always denounced, that Guatemala is a corrupt state that's been co-opted by criminals. This is now reflected in violating our right to participate in this presidential election. They fear not Thelma but the people, the people who organized and are putting forward their proposals for structural change in Guatemala. I mean, the significance of your candidacy. In 2019, you got 10 percent of the vote, more than any indigenous person in Guatemalan history. I think before that, um, Rigoberto Menchu got 3 percent. Um, ultimately, uh, the president, Giamate, got 14 percent. You got 10 percent. Talk about what you represent to the pactos de corruptos, which people should understand around the world what's called the pact of the corrupt that is taking you off the ballot. A través del fraude electoral que se dio... Through the election fraud took place. Supposedly, we came in fourth place, but we the peoples understand that we did better, first or second place. But in the face of this electoral fraud, that's the place that they said we came in. Indigenous peoples, we are a menace to the corrupt pact because what we propose is a project for the nation, a popular plurinational assembly in the face of the whole context that we're experiencing. Context marked by assassinations, imprisonment, and the looting of our wealth in Guatemala. So what we are proposing is a constitutional assembly, and that they are fearful of us, the peoples governing ourselves. I'd like to add something. This shows that they're punishing us as a people prohibiting our rights to political participation. Persecution is not new. It's been happening since 2018. From 2018 to date, there have been 26 assassinations of human rights defenders, of those of us who defend our territories and the Mother Earth. So the best way to punish us is to forbid our participation. But we're not after candidacies. We are promoting a whole project for the nation. Our struggle will continue even after the elections. And that is why we're continuing along the path that we've chosen on thus far. Fernando Rodas, can you respond uh, to both of you? You're the vice presidential candidate, and Telma Cabrera is the presidential candidate being banned from the Guatemalan presidential elections this year. 
Bueno, es que le provocamos pánico al pacto de corruptos. Well, we are causing panic to the pact of the corrupt ones, which is an alliance between the political sector and the economic sector. They've looted the country for decades, indeed for centuries perhaps. It's in their interest to maintain the status quo, the situation as is, with three structural problems, inequality, discrimination, racism, and corruption. So the strength of the LP, headed up by Talma Cabrera, supplemented with what Jordan Rodas can contribute with an experience based on defending human rights. And I aspired to be the director of the University of San Carlos, but this has caused them panic. They know that we're the only real option for change. Everything else is just continuing with the same thing, just changing the face of a puppet. Might be a woman, it might be a man, but not like us. We know what the real problems are, and we are going to propose real solutions. Why did you go into exile? You joined so many advocates, judges, lawyers who have left Guatemala. Why did you leave? Bueno, Hemos tenido que salir muchos los que jugamos un papel Many of us who played a role in favor of the struggle against impunity and corruption have had to leave. In my case, as human rights ombudsman, the week after I assumed my office in August 2017, former President Jimmy Morales declared Ivan Velasquez persona non grata and ordered his expulsion. He was then the commissioner of CC. Today, he's defense minister of the Petro administration in Colombia. And uh, I brought an amparo um, action that stopped that arbitrary action by the president. Then he wanted to end the commission before its time. It was touching, uh, getting into sensitive matters. Its investigations were reaching high-level political and economic figures in the Guatemalan state. And so uh, it was an obstacle for the continuation of impunity. And that is why many judges and other judicial officers had to leave. Uh, this was not just backsliding. This was revenge against those who had impacted the, their interests. Telma Cabrera, the leading candidate for president right now is Zuri Rios. Zuri Rios is the daughter of President, former General Rios Mont, who was found guilty of genocide against the Mayan people, your people in the northwest highlands of Guatemala. She insists there was no genocide. Can you talk about this and talk about this history? Eso también viene a ratificar la actitud de un Estado fallido. That also ratifies the attitude of a failed state that shows that the electoral tribunal is corrupted. It's been co-opted by criminals because this background, being the daughter of one who carried out a genocide, tells the people very much, and this shows that the system itself, through its laws, is violating the rights that we have as a people. That is an expression of racism and discrimination against us, the peoples. And that tells us that gives the people a lesson that the power of the powerful resides in the different institutions of the state. It's not that they enjoy support, but rather it is power that has been structured in and operates in the institutions. So we as a people tell our brothers and sisters that that is the result of the failed and corrupted state. 
And the same ones are violating rights and bringing an end to the little bit of democracy that exists in Guatemala. For here, we see that same ones who are excluding the people who are the ones who are bringing into democracy in Guatemala. So the attitude of the Supreme Electoral Tribunal is clear. And we are following the rules of the system in terms of registering our candidacy, but they exclude us. So it's quite clear in whose hands power and who it is, who is serving these interests. Can you talk about the role of the United States then in supporting the military dictator, for example, uh, General Rios Montt? Um, the deaths of some 200,000 Guatemalans and what that has wrought today, decades later. I'd like to ask both of you that question, beginning with Thelma. Bueno, en, en este caso, este, por ejemplo, cuando... Well, in this case, for example, when there are foreign companies that are also operating in Guatemala, for example, as Crower, I'm not sure how to pronounce it in English, but this is a company, a business for electricity distribution that ended up in the hands of a U.S. company. And this also led communities to demand nationalization of the electricity utilities in Guatemala. They also suffered sabotages and repression, where there was complicity of the government of Guatemala and transnational companies are central in the U.S. I think it's important to have historical memory. The government of the United States has played a very unfortunate role at certain times. For example, it backed the counter-revolution in 1954 that put an end to a decade of a democratic spring. Subsequently, they trained members of the military who were carried out genocide and scorched earth policies in Guatemala and other countries of Latin America. And now we see certain nuances. The United States that was also important for supporting the CC, the Commission Against Impunity and Uh, corruption. But then the Guatemalan government was very skillful. They sought to ingratiate themselves with Trump. They changed the location of the uh, Guatemalan embassy in Israel from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, one of the few governments to do so. And it signed, uh, it signed an agreement to be a third country, a third safe country, which is not safe for us. The United States has given a lot of political oxygen over the years to the governments of Guatemala. And today, they have finally un understood that corruption causes migration. They've begun to impose some sanctions, the Magnitsky list, the Engels list. But I think that they should act more quickly to sanction corrupt actors linked to the central government and the economic powers. Otherwise, the same problems are going to continue. For corruption is also a cause of migration. Thelma Cabrera, talk about your presidential platform, what you were calling for in Guatemala. Nuestras demandas son de pueblo. No es personal, es una lucha colectiva que viene diseñado Our presidential platform demands are the demands of the people. It's not a personal thing. It's a collective struggle that has been designed from our communities from being dispossessed of all of our wealth. Ever since the 1954 coup d'etat, ending the 10 years of democratic spring in Guatemala, well, as a result of that, we have suffered eviction of indigenous communities from places where the communities have historically lived, and now they're 
communities, well, we don't even have anywhere to live. Single-crop agriculture has expanded and ended up causing diseases, for example, as a result of a single-crop agriculture. So within the government plan that we put forward, which is the proposal to have a constitutional assembly, fighting for our rights as human beings, and at the same time respecting the rights of Mother Earth, in other words, life in balance with Mother Earth and nature. We are also proposing that we build a plurinational state in which the different indigenous peoples are present with our delegates, and that will not just be used as a political banner. We need to have representation of the peoples with self-government. We need to have a political constitution drafted by the peoples. The idea is to defend life. And let me round out my answer. In the face of the situation of evictions, there's greater migration and greater migration leads to greater disintegration of families. And for those who are in Guatemala as well, it represents attack on our health. There is major malnutrition. Even though Guatemala is a territory, a country filled with wealth, but that wealth is poorly distributed. It's in just a few hands. And that is why we, the peoples, are the ones who suffer the consequences. And that is why we were right to propose a project for the nation, a constitutional assembly to address all of the needs that we have as a country. So when we stood up to say we are human rights defenders, then they label us as terrorists, criminals, thieves. And that is why we had to propose this project of a nation, saying we are not just rowdy ones, we're not criminals. We love life. We know how to make proposals. It's just that they're afraid of us. So what happens when you go back to Guatemala now? Uh, you, they have ruled you are not a presidential candidate. Do you accept this? Bueno, lo que pasa es que nos estamos fortaleciendo cada día más. Well, the thing is that we are getting stronger every day. They might be shutting the doors to us in these elections, but our aim is not just elections. Our struggle is getting stronger. We have showed that we have followed all the legal procedures. We are peace-loving peoples, and we respect the laws and procedures for participation. But despite that, they prohibit our participation. But we get stronger and stronger because our aim is not just to participate in elections. We want to go beyond that proposing a project for the nation with structural changes, fighting corruption. Corruption is there because there are structural problems. It's a sign of the structural problems. And so we say, we have identified the illness, but we have the medicine, which is our proposal. And we're going to be strengthening our proposal, showing that we too know how to denounce the situation internationally and that we are able to follow the procedures. This is the path that we're following now. Guatemalan presidential candidate Telma Cabrera and her running mate, Jordan Rodas, they have been banned from running for president in Guatemala's June election. Special thanks to Maria Teresena, Charina Nadura, Sam Alkoff, Mike Burke, Robbie Karen, and Charlie Roberts. Oh, and congratulations to my beloved niece, Anna, and Scott on the birth of their son, Hugo Solomon. Welcome to the world, Hugo, and congratulations. Congratulations to his big brother, Miles. Uh, from his Kvelling Tia, I'm Amy Goodman.